Section 26, Part 1 of Chapter 7 of The Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Commentaries on the Laws of England by William Blackstone. Book 1. Chapter 7, Part 1. Chapter the Seventh. Of the King's Prerogative. It was observed in a former chapter that one of the principal bulwarks of civil liberty, or in other words, of the British Constitution, was the limitation of the King's prerogative by bounds so certain and notorious, that it is impossible he should ever exceed them, without the consent of the people, on the one hand, or without, on the other, a violation of that original contract, which in all states impliedly, and in ours most expressively, subsists between the Prince and the subject." It will now be our business to consider this prerogative minutely, to demonstrate its necessity in general, and to mark out in the most proper instances its particular extent and restrictions, from which considerations this conclusion will evidently follow, that the powers which are vested in the crown by the laws of England are necessarily for the support of society, and do not entrench any farther on our natural liberties than is expedient for the maintenances of our civil. There cannot be a stronger proof of that genuine freedom, which is the boast of this age and country, than the power of discussing and examining, with decency and respect, the limits of the king's prerogative. A topic that in some former ages was thought too delicate and sacred to be profaned by the pen of a subject. It was ranked among the Arcani Imperii, and, like the mysteries of the Bonadea, was not suffered to be pried into by any but such as were initiated in its service, because, perhaps, the exertion of the one, like the solemnities of the other, would not bear the inspection of a rational and sober inquiry. The glorious Queen Elizabeth herself made no scruple to direct her parliaments to abstain from discoursing of matters of state, and it was the constant language of this favourite princess and her ministers that even the august assembly ought not to deal, to judge, or to meddle with Her Majesty's prerogative royale. And her successor, King James I, who had imbibed high notions of the divinity of regal sway, more than once laid it down in his speeches, that as it is atheism and blasphemy in a creature to dispute what the deity may do, so it is presumption and sedition in a subject to dispute what a king may do in the height of his power. Good Christians, he adds, will be content with God's will, revealed in his word, and good subjects will rest in the king's will, revealed in his law. But whatever might be the sentiments of some of our princes, this was never the language of our ancient constitution and laws. The limitation of the regal authority was a first and essential principle in all the Gothic systems of government established in Europe, though gradually driven out and overborne by violence and chicane, in most of the kingdoms on the continent. We have seen in the preceding chapter the sentiments of Bracton and Fortescue, at the distance of two centuries from each other. And Sir Henry Finch, under Charles I, after the lapse of two centuries more, though he lays down the law of prerogative in very strong and emphatical terms, yet qualifies it with a general restriction in regards to the liberties of the people. The king hath a prerogative in all things, that are not injurious to the subject. For in them all it must be remembered that the king's prerogative stretcheth not to the doing of any wrong. 
Nihil enum aliud potest rex, nisi id solum quod de jure potest. And here it may be some satisfaction to remark how widely the civil law differs from our own, with regard to the authority of the laws over the prince, or, as a civilian would rather have expressed it, the authority of the prince over the laws. It is a maxim of the English law, as we have seen from Bracton, that rex debit esse sub lega quia lex facet regnum. The imperial law will tell us that, in omnibus imperatoris excipitor fortuna qui ipsus legis deus subjecit, we shall not long hesitate to which of them give the preference, as most conducive to those ends for which societies were framed, and are kept together, especially as the Roman lawyers themselves seem to be sensible of the unreasonableness of their own constitution. Decet tamen principim, says Paulus, savare legis, quibis ipsis solitus est. This is at once laying down the principle of despotic power, and at the same time acknowledging its absurdity. By the word prerogative we usually understand that special preeminence which the king hath over and above all other persons, and out of the ordinary course of the common law, in right of his regal dignity. It signifies, in its etymology, from pre and rogo, something that is required or demanded before, or in preference to, all others. And hence it follows, that it must be in its nature singular and eccentrical, that it can only be applied to those rights and capacities which the king enjoys alone, in contradistinction to others, and not to those which he enjoys in common with any of his subjects. For if once any one prerogative of the crown could be held in common with the subject, it would cease to be a prerogative any longer. And therefore Finch lays it down as a maxim, that the prerogative is that law in case of the king, which is law in no case of the subject." prerogatives are either direct or incidental. The direct are such positive substantial parts of the royal character and authority as are rooted in and spring from the king's political person, considered merely by itself, without reference to any other extrinsic circumstance, as the right of sending ambassadors, of creating peers, and of making war or peace. But such prerogatives as are incidental bear always a relation to something else, distinct from the king's person, and are indeed only exceptions, in favour of the crown, to those general rules that are established for the rest of the community, such as, that no costs shall be recovered against the king, that the king can never be a joint tenant, and that his debt shall be preferred before a debt to any of his subjects. These, and an infinite number of other instances, will better be understood, when we come regularly to consider the rules themselves, to which these incidental prerogatives are exceptions. And therefore we will at present only dwell upon the king's substantive or direct prerogatives. These substantive or direct prerogatives may again be divided into three kinds, being such as regard, first, the king's royal character, secondly, his royal authority, and lastly, his royal income. These are necessary to secure reverence to his person, obedience to his commands, and an affluent supply for the ordinary expenses of government, without all of which it is impossible to maintain the executive power in due independence and vigour. Yet in every branch of this large and extensive dominion our free constitution has interposed such seasonable checks and restrictions as may curb it from trampling on those liberties, 
which it was meant to secure and establish. The enormous weight of prerogative, if left to itself, as in arbitrary government it is, spreads havoc and destruction among all the inferior movements, but when balanced and bridled, as with us, by its proper counterpoise, timely and judiciously applied, its operations are then equable and regular, it invigorates the whole machine, and enables every part to answer the end of its construction. In the present chapter we shall only consider the two first of these divisions, which relate to the king's political character and authority, or in other words, his dignity and regal power, to which the last name of prerogative is frequently narrowed and confined. The other division, which forms the royal revenue, will require a distinct examination, according to the known distribution of the feudal writers, who distinguish the royal prerogatives into the majora and minora regalia, in the latter of which classes the rights of the revenue are ranked. For, to use their own words, majora regalia imperii, preeminentium spectant, minora vero ad commodum, pecuniarium immediate attanant, et hoc proprii fiscalia sunt, et ad jus fisci pertinent. First, then, of the royal dignity. Under every monarchical establishment it is necessary to distinguish the prince from his subjects, not only by the outward pomp and decorations of majesty, but also by ascribing to him certain qualities, as inherent in his royal capacity, distinct from and superior to those of any other individual in the nation. For, though a philosophical mind will consider the royal person merely as one man appointed by mutual consent to preside over many others, and will pay him that reverence and duty which the principles of society demand, yet the mass of mankind will be apt to grow insolent and refractory, if taught to consider their prince as a man of no greater perfection than themselves. The law therefore ascribes to the king, in his high political character, not only large powers and emoluments, which form his prerogative and revenue, but likewise certain attributes of a great and transcendent nature, by which the people are led to consider him in the light of a superior being, and to pay him that awful respect, which may enable him with greater ease to carry on the business of government. This is what I understand by the royal dignity, the several branches of which we will now proceed to examine. 1. And, first, the law ascribes to the king the attribute of sovereignty or preeminence. Rex es vicarius, says Bracton, et minister de intera, omnis quidem sub eo est, et ipsa sub nullo, nisi tantum sub deo. He is said to have imperial dignity, and in charters before the conquest is frequently styled Basilius and Imperator, the titles respectively assumed by the emperors of the East and West. His realm is declared to be an empire, and his crown imperial, by many acts of Parliament, particularly the statutes 24th Henry VIII, c. 12, and 25th Henry VIII, c. 28, which at the same time declare the king to be the supreme head of the realm in matters both civil and ecclesiastical, and of consequence inferior to no man upon earth, dependent on no man, accountable to no man. Formerly there prevailed a ridiculous notion, propagated by the German and Italian civilians, that an emperor could do many things which a king could not, as the creation of notaries and the like, and that all kings were in some degree subordinate and subject to the emperor of Germany or Rome. The meaning, therefore, of the legislature 
when it uses these terms of empire and imperial, and applies them to the realm of England, is only to assert that our king is equally sovereign and independent within these, his dominions, as any emperor is in his empire, and owes no kind of subjection to any other potentate upon earth. Hence it is, that no suit or action can be brought against the king, even in civil matters, because no court can have jurisdiction over him. For all jurisdiction applies superiority of power. Authority to try would be vain and idle, without an authority to redress, and the sentence of a court would be contemptible, unless that court had power to command the execution of it. But who, says Finch, shall command the king? Hence it is likewise that by law the person of the king is sacred, even though the measures pursued in his reign may be completely tyrannical and arbitrary, for no jurisdiction upon earth has power to try him in a criminal way, much less to condemn him to punishment. If any foreign jurisdiction had this power, as was formerly claimed by the Pope, the independence of the kingdom would be no more, and, if such a power were vested in any domestic tribunal, there would soon be an end of the Constitution, by destroying the free agency of one of the constituent parts of the sovereign legislative power. Are, then, it may be asked, the subjects of England totally destitute of remedy, in case the crown should invade their rights, either by private injuries or public oppressions? To this we may answer that the law has provided a remedy in both cases. And first, as to private injuries, if any person has, in point of property, a just demand upon the king, he must petition him in his court of chancery, where his chancellor will administer right as a matter of grace, though not upon compulsion. And this is entirely consonant with what is laid down by the writers on the natural law. A subject, says Pufendorf, so long as he continues a subject, hath no way to oblige his prince to give him his due, when he refuses it, though no wise prince will ever refuse to stand to a lawful contract. And if the prince gives the subject leave to enter an action against him, upon such contract, in his own courts, the action itself proceeds rather upon natural equity, than upon the municipal laws. For the end of such action is not to compel the prince to observe the contract, but to persuade him. And as to personal wrongs, it is well observed by Mr. Locke, the harm which the sovereign can do in his own person not being likely to happen often, nor to extend itself far, nor being able by his single strength to subvert the laws, nor oppress the body of the people, should any prince have so much weakness and ill-nature as to endeavour to do it, the conveniency, therefore, of some particular mischiefs, the inconveniency, therefore, of some particular mischiefs, that may happen some time, when a heady prince comes to the throne, are well recompensed by the peace of the public and security of the government, in the person of the chief magistrate being thus set out of the reach of danger. Next, as to cases of ordinary public oppression, where the vitals of the Constitution are not attacked, the law hath also assigned a remedy. For as a king cannot misuse his power without the advice of evil counsellors and the assistance of wicked ministers, these men may be examined and punished. The Constitution has therefore provided, by means of indictments and parliamentary impeachments, that no man shall dare to assist the crown in contradiction to the laws of the land. But it is at the same time a maxim in those laws that the king himself can do no wrong since it would be a great weakness and absurdity in any system of positive law to define any possible wrong without possible redress. 
For as to such public oppressions as tend to dissolve the Constitution, and subvert the fundamentals of government, they are cases which the law will not, out of decency, suppose, being incapable of distrusting those whom it has invested with any part of the supreme power, since distrust would render the exercise of that power precarious and impracticable. For wherever the law expresses its distrust of abuse of power, it always vests a superior corrosive authority in some other hand to correct it, the very notion of which destroys the idea of sovereignty. If, therefore, for example, the two houses of Parliament, or either of them, had avowedly a right to animadvert on the king, or each other, or if the king had a right to animadvert on either of the houses, that branch of the legislature, so subject to animadversion, would instantly cease to be part of the supreme power, the balance of the constitution would be overthrown, and that branch or branches in which this jurisdiction resided would be completely sovereign. The supposition of law, therefore, is that neither the king nor either house of parliament, collectively taken, is capable of doing any wrong, since in such cases the law feels itself incapable of furnishing any adequate remedy. For which all oppressions, which may happen to spring from any branch of the sovereign power, must necessarily be out of the reach of any stated rule, or express legal provision. But if ever they unfortunately happen, the prudence of the times must provide new remedies upon new emergencies. Indeed, it is found by experience that whenever the unconstitutional oppressions, even of the sovereign power, advance with gigantic strides and threaten dissolution to the state, mankind will not be reasoned out of the feelings of humanity, nor will sacrifice their liberty by a scrupulous adherence to those political maxims which were originally established to preserve it. And therefore, though the positive laws are silent, experience will furnish us with a very remarkable case, wherein nature and reason prevailed. When King James the Second invaded the fundamental constitution of the realm, the convention declared an abdication, whereby the throne was rendered vacant, which induced a new settlement of the crown. And so far as this precedent leads, and no farther, we may now be allowed to lay down the law of redress against public oppression. If, therefore, any future prince shall endeavour to subvert the Constitution by breaking the original contract between king and people, should violate the fundamental laws, and should withdraw himself out of the kingdom, we are now authorised to declare that this conjuncture of circumstances would amount to an abdication, and the throne would be thereby vacant. But it is not for us to say, that any one or two of these ingredients would amount to such a situation, for there our precedent would fail us. In these, therefore, or other circumstances, which a fertile imagination may furnish, since both law and history are silent, it becomes us to be silent too, leaving to future generations, whenever necessity and the safety of the whole shall require it, the exertion of those inherent, though latent, powers of society, which no climate, no time, no constitution, no contract can ever destroy or diminish. End of section 26